Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. I'm sorry to do this so early in the show, but we have to talk about something really, really important, something that we haven't ever talked about on this show before. That's right, Donald Trump. (sighs) Another week, another week of crazy. Um, This week, we saw Paul Manafort get in more trouble. Uh, Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, come out and try to get Donald Trump into more trouble. We've got Roger Stone, who's on the the hook. We've got Matt Whitaker, who is potentially God knows what he's doing. I had to have the expert on all these topics on Abigail Tracy, who is a staff news writer for The Hive, and she covers foreign policy, national security, Trump, the Democrats, the chaos, the bloody blah, blah, blah. Anyway, let's not waste any time. Let's get straight to the point and find out if the Mueller investigation is finally going to come to a close and who will be wrapped up in all of it. Welcome back to the show, Abby. It is very exciting to have you on and also even more exciting to realize that Donald Trump might go to jail soon. But before we get there... (laughs) Uh, can you explain what happened this week and why we're it's kind of all seems like things are starting to line up a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Um, thanks again for having me, too. I appreciate it. So this week has been certainly, one way to put it, is eventful. Obviously, before the election, you know, Mueller went into his quiet period under DOJ guidelines, you know, didn't want to do anything that could be perceived as interfering in an election, obviously not make the same mistake that James Comey did, which he was, you know, criticized very much so for, you know, ahead of the presidential election. So we're very clearly now out of that quiet period, I think is one uh, very obvious takeaway over the last couple of days. But so, you know, this week has been a bit of a whirlwind this morning, too. Um, but what we saw this week with Paul Manafort was really interesting. So on Monday night, we had Mueller... Uh, you know, submit a filing to a court wherein he essentially accused uh, Paul Manafort of lying and failing to live up to the cooperation and plea agreement that they had reached. So basically, he he said on a variety of subject matters, Paul Manafort misled or lied to investigators, which was a pretty big deal. So essentially, their agreement dissolved. So this news happens, right? Um, pretty big story in and of itself. But then fast forward a couple hours in the morning, we get a bombshell report from The Guardian that says, Paul Manafort visited Julian Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy in London three times spanning, you know, a number of years, but most notably once during the presidential campaign when he would have been in a position of power uh, as chairman. So that was that was a big that was a really big deal. Sort of, you know, this very clear link, um, if true, between Paul Manafort, the Trump campaign and Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, which obviously, you know, was the organization releasing the hacked emails during the election. So you have that. So <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry, keep going. Oh no, no. Seven thousand questions for you. Yeah. So then so then we have that. And then after this, then the New York Times reports that, okay, yes, all of this stuff is going on. You know, Paul Manafort's been accused by Mueller of lying. You get the Guardian report, but then the New York Times comes out and says, actually also, so everybody knows, Paul Manafort's lawyer, Kevin Downing, has been in repeated contact with the Trump legal team, sort of giving them updates, a back channel, so to speak, on what is going on with the Mueller investigation. So that's huge news. And that type of arrangement is very unheard of. So that's kind of catching you up to speed in terms of, you know, what's going on with Paul Manafort. 
Okay, so but that type of arrangement, while it's unheard of, is not illegal, right? So questionable. So I think I think one of the interesting things is in the New York Times report that sort of came out and said this. Um, you you know they said in the report that this wasn't illegal, but I've spoken with um, lawyers and you know former prosecutors over the past couple of days, and the point that they made to me is it's un clear because it's very much in this gray area and it's kind of hard to say without knowing more details as to you know what specifically these conversations looked like what was really going on so just based off the New York Times reporting it's really difficult to rule out you know whether it is illegal whether it's legal things of that nature but no matter what like the point was it is ethically questionable for sure okay so is Paul Manafort just saying, you know what, I am going to get pardoned anyway, fuck it, I'm just going to have some fun here um, and just do whatever the hell I want? Or is there something else going on? Well, I think uh, sort of, you know, as you look at these in context, first you look at lying to investigators. So when that happened, legal experts I spoke to were very much like, this is weird, this is stupid, why would you, when you're already you know, saddled with eight criminal counts, why would you then strike a plea agreement only to violate that plea agreement in terms of lying? So even at that stage, people are like, maybe he's interested in a pardon. Maybe there are other people at stake or he doesn't want, there's a number of reasons why somebody might lie, you know, whether it's protecting associates, a spouse, things of that nature. It happens. And obviously here you have an individual who is convicted of fraud. So he is a, you know, convicted liar, essentially. So when you go into these agreements, you know, prosecutors always run the risk that this person might not be fully truthful. So there were Mm -hmm. questions early on as to whether he was already angling for a pardon. Fast forward, then when you have this news that his legal team is in conversations with Trump's legal team, the takeaway from legal experts that I've spoken to over the last day or so has really been, okay, the only thing that makes sense right now is just hoping for a pardon at that point. So if if it is illegal talking to Trump's legal team, who is it illegal by? Is it Manafort? Is it his lawyers? Is it Trump's lawyers? Is it Trump? Is there anyone that could, depending on what has been discussed, actually get into severe trouble for it? Because it seems like when you look at the way that the the Mueller team acts and, and the investigation mm-hmm. and, and so on, it, they don't like they they have very little patience. There's there's not a lot we know about them, but what yeah. we do know is they have very little patience for stuff like this. They don't like being dicked around. They don't like being lied to. Um, they don't like people taking advantage of them. So it seems that if there's an if there is a possibility that they could um, file some charges in this, who would be the person that would get in trouble? Well, so it's. It's hard for me to definitively say, of course, because I don't, you know, have all the details, nor am I, you know, a prosecutor. But one of the interesting things that have been raised is this question as to whether there was something could amount to witness tampering or obstruction of justice, particularly in regard to this pardon question, right? So this idea that if there were uh, sort of offers of a pardon saying, hey, just so you know, Manafort, if you make false statements or if you lie to the FBI or you don't divulge X, Y, Z, let me wink, wink, you know that, 
you know, Trump will give you a pardon. If there was something like that, that could, you know, possibly amount to witness tampering or obstruction of justice. So if that were the case, you know, you could have a whole host of individuals who could, you know, be in trouble for something like that. Um, one of the really interesting things that um, – a couple of the lawyers I've spoken with over the last few days have said is that for Kevin Downing, so reminder, this is Paul Manafort's defense attorney, the fact that he was ever sort of having these conversations with Rudy Giuliani and the rest of the Trump legal team is basically is very stupid from a career perspective. So like if you are a guy who is working on perhaps the most publicized case um, right now, for sure, uh, and you're kind of back channeling with, you know, with the president's lawyers, that sends a very clear message to future prosecutors that you might work with that you're not a guy to be trusted with, which is really interesting. So sort of this idea as to, you know, for Kevin Downing, this was a very stupid thing and potentially career suicide because as a defense attorney, you know, a lot of your job is striking plea agreements and deals with prosecutors such as this. And really, you know, if prosecutors look at this behavior in the future, you know, they won't look back on it kindly at all and, you know, may be very unlikely to work with Kevin Downing in the future. But so you kind of have a lot to unpack. And again, it comes back to this idea of it's hard to say without more details. All right. So so to sidestep a little bit here, um, uh, the actually before I sidestep, I do have one more question in, in regards to this. So if it, I do believe that Trump would – I mean just based on all of his tweets and his rhetoric mm-hmm. that like, oh, this is just a witch hunt and, and that you know that uh, Manafort's a good man and all those – even though Manafort's own daughters think that he's actually had people killed. Um, right. <laughs> if it – which is – can you imagine your kids think that of you? Yeah. Uh, you could yeah. be a pretty messed up individual. <laughs> yeah. Look out. Um, make, make sure that doesn't happen to you. I'm going to make sure my kids don't ever think I had someone killed. Um, <laughs> Uh, except maybe our editor, John. Uh, so if if um, if he if the, this is you know just looking at this from a, a, a practical perspective, that let's just say that that Trump is planning on uh, on pardoning uh, him. What happens? Do you think that the Mueller team has a a state level case that they try to push through some AGs in New York or wherever? Because you can't be pardoned, of course, for a state a state crime. Like, is there a they're not going to just kind of roll over and let this happen, right? Yeah, I mean, if it went, um, so if it were, if, let's say, if Paul Manafort were to be pardoned for these crimes by Donald Trump, you're right, like that absolves him of of these federal crimes. And then he certainly would, could be on the hook for state crimes. And like you said, you know, a presidential pardon, while absolute, it also doesn't apply to state crimes. It's sort of, you know, this loophole there. But um, what you would see is that that wouldn't be Mueller's team. That would be, you'd look to, for instance, like the New York Attorney General um, or a Virginia Attorney General or some of these other, um, you know, the states wherein some of these crimes took place. So it'd be led completely by like state, um, state level prosecutors, not the Mueller team. Um, that said, it, you know, I'm not sure in terms of sort of what type of intelligence sharing or information sharing um, could be uh, at play there. But yeah, it would get booted, um, you know, for instance, to the New York Attorney General, um, who then could investigate him for these crimes. But I think one of the important things to realize, and this was a point that was made to me by um, other folks, is that 
in terms of resources, when you look at what Ma- what Mueller has versus like a state AG's office, um, it's pretty stark. Like he has a lot of resources at his disposal, like federal crimes. You know, um, if you get charged with a federal crime, it's a much bigger deal than a state crime, things of that nature. But so it'd be lesser. But yeah, you're right. Like Paul Manafort, even if he were to be pardoned, isn't in the clear necessarily. And you have had state AGs kind of come out and say, hey, like we are here if that happens, sort of, you know, positioning themselves as a backstop. But but one of the things that's, that's kind of peculiar is when you look at this idea that Trump could pardon him and everyone says, oh, that'll turn into a constitutional crisis. How is that going to turn into a constitutional crisis? You can't even get Mitch McConnell to... Uh, to agree to ensure that the Mueller investigation can stay going forward. Um, The Republicans, the spineless Republicans, are not going to do anything if Trump starts pardoning everyone who has been arrested uh, and is in jail. So, and, and, And the people who voted for Trump I probably believe that it is a uh, a witch hunt and that he did nothing wrong and neither did these other people and it's all, you know, they're all being framed by Hillary Clinton or something like that. So is it – the thing that I can't understand is, mm-hmm. is this just kind of one big, you know, show of nothing at the end of the day or will there actually be something that comes of this? Well, I think um – I think there has been, you know, certainly you make a good point. Like Republicans have repeatedly blocked any legislation to protect Robert Mueller from coming to a vote. That is very true. But, you know, they also have signaled that, you know, any move against Mueller would be met with um, action by them. And, you know, there is talk of, you know, whether pardoning individuals involved in this would sort of be, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back type of a thing. And I think you're right. Like, there is a very real concern that, you know, even if Trump kind of went crazy and started pardoning everyone in sight, himself possibly included, um, there is a question as to what Republicans would do. But I think what's really interesting, and this is, you know, this is unrelated to the Mueller investigation, but I'm not sure if you paid attention yesterday to a vote on a war powers resolution that was in the Senate. Um, So it was actually a pretty sharp rebuke of Trump by Republicans who voted to kind of, it was a procedural vote, but basically they voted to say, hey, we're going to force a discussion on, you know, U.S. backing of Saudi and UAE in the war in Yemen. Um, And the, you know, the Trump administration has very sternly pushed back on this. They're lobbying very hard against such a resolution. But what's been interesting is, you know, yesterday you had you had Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis and you had Secretary of State Mike Pompeo come down and basically they gave a private briefing to senators during which they said, hey, guys, like, you know, this is stupid. Like, you shouldn't even really be talking about this. Like, our interests in the Mideast, you know, are bigger than this and the war in Yemen is going to continue whether U.S. is involved or not. It was basically the message that they sent. So very shortly after that, 61 senators, which would include Republicans in that number, voted to... Uh, on this procedural move to essentially say, hey, we're going to at least talk about this resolution, which was a sharp rebuke to the Trump administration. So I think there is a question, especially post midterms, as to whether some Republicans might have found their spine. And keep in mind what is going on over in the House. There you have, um, you know, Democrats are now in the majority. So some of these things, there does appear to be some changes and maybe, you know, potential avenues for pressure on Trump, you know, given this kind of post-election era that we're in now. 
Okay, so let's let's move a little bit to the let's yeah, move a little sorry. to the to the no no it's it, it to the left I think we'll say we'll move a okay. little to the left now because it used to be the right but uh, <laughs> Michael Cohen um, uh, right. just today uh, just this week he uh, he's now it's crazy I think he's spent seventy hours with the Mueller investigators which is insane yes. uh, and he seems like he's kind of had a come to Jesus moment um, and he's come clean about everything uh, including. Uh, that uh, Trump knew about the the Russia meeting at Trump Tower. Tell us what this means. Is is this uh, you know is is Michael Cohen going to jail still? Is the, is he going to get away with this because he has shared all this information? How does this all play out? Well, so um, for starters, I. I- you know, there has been speculation about the Trump Tower meeting and whether Michael Cohen has uh, come clean and said Trump knew about this. What we really saw today, actually, in the filings was that Michael Cohen came out and said uh, the discussions and negotiations with Russia about, you know, a potential Trump Tower Moscow project went on much longer uh, than he originally said. So he told Congress uh, that he stopped that these negotiations ceased in January 2016. Today he came out and he said, hey, I lied about that. They actually went on to June 2016, which is, you know, interesting, of course, and notable because, you know, now we're talking about really in the throes of the um, Republican primary, at which point, you know, Donald Trump was the presumptive nominee. And he also said that, you know, he briefed the president and his family multiple times on this and, you know, agreed that he would travel to Russia. So that's kind of what we know right now and where things stand. You raise a really interesting point about Trump Tower and some of these other issues as to whether, you know, Michael Cohen is has information on that and it'll come clear. I think one thing that is very clear is, you know, he's super willing to cooperate with Mueller and it doesn't seem as though he has any sort of fear of repercussions or is keeping anything, um, you know, to himself in the hopes that he'll get, like Manafort, potentially a pardon from Trump. Um, So Michael Cohen will definitely go to jail, but I think if he continues to be, you know, an incredibly cooperative witness uh, in this case, he could look at very, very little time sort of depending on how, how things shake out with with Mueller and with investigators. Um, this is also uh, it's it's it literally is like you know season three of of, <laughs> of the Trump of the Trump Netflix drama. Right, right. Um, Seriously, you are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Go check out the live episode of the Origins podcast with special guest Sarah Jessica Parker, brought to you by the American Express Business Gold Card. To celebrate the launch of the new Business Gold Card, host James Andrew Miller sits down with the brilliant Sarah Jessica Parker to talk about how she turned her business idea into gold. Known as an actress and producer, she's also a serious businesswoman with advice and best practices to share. Go and visit www.originsthepodcast.com, that's O-R-I-G-I-N-S, thepodcast.com, to listen. It's fantastic. Sarah Jessica Parker's incredible. Andrew James Miller's incredible. Go give it a listen. Originsthepodcast.com. Okay, so so what happens next? Do we do does does Mueller wait until the the Democrats have the House and then he releases all this stuff and starts actually you know uh, arresting Don Jr. and people like that, or does he do it before? And and the question that I have that I don't understand the answer mm-hmm. to, and hopefully you can shed some light on this, is 
is even though the Democrats are going to have the House, um, are they? They're still not going to be able to do that much with all of this at the end of the day, right? Well, um, so so to your first question, one of the really interesting things about Robert Mueller is this entire time, you know, he's done things on his timeline. I've spoken with a couple, you know, former colleagues of him, you know, individuals who um, were his subordinates, who worked with him, who know him well, some of his close friends, um, you know, from the FBI. And what they really say is, you know, Robert Mueller is a workaholic. He sleeps barely at all. Um, and he's just going to, when things are ready, he's going to release them. So aside from this, you know, this quiet period that we saw leading up to the midterms, uh, there really is a sense that Robert Mueller's just operating on a timeline driven by the work and where things stand with the work. So I don't actually think there's really any expectation that he's sort of timing things or planning things um, based on this political calendar. And, you know, things will really change come January 3rd when Democrats take the House. Um, so I really, I, I think he's just going to kind of keep chugging along, like when indictments, if he has them already, he's going to release those indictments um, and kind of move forward. Because also, you know, especially now, I think there is a lot of pressure to just move forward and kind of get through this as quickly as possible. Um, and then your second question was, oh, did you have a follow-up? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. The, oh, yeah, no, yeah. This is, keep going. You're, you're yeah. answering all my questions. This is okay. amazing. Yeah. So, and then um, to your follow-up question in terms of what Democrats can do, uh, it's a good one. <laughs> so obviously, <laughs> obviously, Democrats don't have the Senate. So if we're talking about impeachment proceedings or something of that nature, that would obviously be a, um, you know, that would obviously be kind of a barrier um, in that you would need Republicans um, in the Senate to to sort of turn against the, the head of their party um, if that were the case. But I think one of the really interesting things on the question of impeachment is that, you know, House leadership has said time and time again, like, we aren't addressing this issue unless it's really a bipartisan thing. So I think the signals that they've been sending is, you know, if we are truly going to talk about impeachment, you know, not sort of just like kind of fringe figures or fringe wings of the Democratic Party um, or activist groups, uh, it'd be at a point where, you know, there's clearly a reason for it that is supported on on both sides of the aisle. Maybe not fully on both sides of the aisle, but has support, um, you know, from Republicans as well as Democrats. Um, and then just sort of beyond that, in terms of what Democrats can do in the House, actually a lot, like especially in terms of sort of uncovering some of these, you know, answers to these unanswered questions that have gone on. So I think, you know, over the last couple of weeks, I've been in touch with a lot of, um, you know, uh, congressional aides and, and some Congress, uh, some members of Congress about, you know, sort of what they're going to do when they take over the majority, sort of what actions they plan to take, the ways in which they're going to exert oversight that Republicans have really not done over the last two years. And um, specifically when we're talking about the Mueller investigation, there's a lot of areas um, in which the House Intelligence Committee now under con or will be under control of Democrats come January 3rd can do. Things that would be, you know, uh, provide transcripts of some of these interviews that they conducted with uh, witnesses to Robert Mueller. So one of the really interesting things is Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee have actually blocked transcripts of interviews with individuals, I believe, you know, Don Jr. among them, from being released to Mueller. So if you're looking at that, like, that is a point of, you know, having that transcript and providing it to Mueller could, you know, 
help Mueller determine whether Don Jr., for instance, I'm not saying he necessarily did, but for instance, if he perjured himself talking about the Trump Tower meeting in June 2016 or something of that nature. So you have that. The Republicans have also blocked a number of witnesses uh, that Democrats wanted to call. So they just haven't called some folks to testify before the committee. Um, And then there are just like other sort of powers that they have and just being able to lead um, some of these testimonies is also a big a big tool for them. So when you're looking at that, and then, you know, you also have questions about um, Donald Trump's tax returns. You know, now, once Democrats have the majority, they'll have subpoena power and they could, you know, go after that. Um, they can also start investigating his foreign business ties and things of that nature. So there's really, so there's really a lot. And I think one of the interesting things, you know, maybe Congress but doesn't... But if they... If they- Wait, if they, so if they start investigating all these things, yeah, they don't. They can release it. They can show what's really going on, but they can't do much else with it because the Senate has to be on board too, right? I mean, not not necessarily. So certainly they can release it, but if they uncover, you know, crimes or wrongdoing, those are things that they can report. But also, you know, keep in mind too that lying to Congress is a crime. So. You know, the more individuals that they have before them um, who come and testify under oath to these committees, you know, what that gives is a, is a record. Like that is an under oath record um, of these individuals recounting things such as, you know, what happened at that meeting um, or other aspects of the investigation, which can then, you know, be provided to Robert Mueller or other things where they can find, you know, discrepancies between different individuals, uh, statements to Congress, things of that nature. So there is a lot they can do. But you're right, like in terms of, you know, they only have the one chamber of Congress. So over in the Senate, you're not necessarily, you know, going to see some of that same oversight. But I think interestingly, and of course, this is, you know, to to give credit where credit is due, the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee has been much more effective in their investigation and much more bipartisan, uh, whereas the House kind of fell into shambles. Um, so do you think that before we get to um, – is January 20th when the new Congress is sworn in? Um, is Trump going to do anything to kind of try to protect himself after they are sworn in? Or is, is there is there anything he can do? Or is he just going to tweet a lot and, and you know, uh, make a lot of bloviating noises about how he doesn't think that this is real and it's all a witch hunt? Yeah. Well, I mean, arguably, he he already did, right, with the appointment of uh, Matthew Whitaker as acting attorney general. So so that has really been a move that many saw uh, as a way to protect himself. Um, So, you know, right after the midterms, he basically immediately forced the resignation of Jeff Sessions, um, who had recused himself from the Russia investigation. So then, you know, that put uh, Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, in charge of the investigation. Um, And then he appointed Matthew Whitaker. And Matthew Whitaker is an individual who, uh, you know, isn't Senate confirmed, which is a really big deal, who's now in this role with um, authority over the Russia investigation. And in that position, you know, there have been a lot of questions around whether he, you know, whether he should be. A lot of ethical questions have been raised given past statements he's made about the Mueller probe publicly on Twitter, you know, in interviews with CNN and things of that nature. So, but in his role, he does have authority over Mueller and he can, you know, 
refuse certain requests. He can block indictments and, you know, he he can basically not sign off on things that Robert Mueller wants to do in the Russia investigation in that role. And, you know, you've had Trump, I think, in recent days come out and say, you know, I'm in no rush to to get a permanent attorney general and replace um, Matthew Whitaker. Of course, he's in no rush because <laughs> yeah. scumbag, awful yeah. person. What's so fascinating is um, I wonder if, uh, and I'm curious what you think about this, is when you when you look at the reports um, this week about um, finally all of the the news tallying of, of, of votes has, has kind of come to a, a head. And you, when you look at some of these reports and you see how many people voted in certain areas mm-hmm. uh, across America – you know, there was a, an NBC News report that Democrats won the House with the largest margin of victory in history for either party ever. I mean, even after Nixon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to wonder, and I wonder what you think about this, is does Trump get this? Does he realize this? Or does he does he look the other way at the House and um, even with all the gerrymandering, you know, 40 plus seats uh, and think, oh, well, we got, you know, we have three more seats in the Senate now. So, uh, ha ha, we win. Yeah, no, I I think um, sort of you hit it on the head at the end there. I think Donald Trump believes what he wants to believe and sees what he wants to see. So I think, you know, somebody like Donald Trump is not going to sit to have, you know, the differences between the House map and the Senate map ahead of the elections explained to him, right? So obviously, you know, you look at the, the hand that Democrats had to play in the Senate in the midterms, and it was really, really bad. It was a very bad hand. Uh, they Republicans were only defending nine seats, whereas you know Democrats were over two dozen, I believe, um, that they were defending. Many of which were in um, you know uh, Trump country and and things of that nature. So it's like, yeah, the fact actually that. Democrats didn't lose more seats is very impressive. But I think to somebody like Donald Trump, who really views himself as, um, you know, the best ever, um, he's going to look to the Senate and essentially tell himself, oh, look, I saved the Senate. And if it was really that bad, you know, we would have lost lost both chambers as Obama had, you know. God, he's such a psychopath. (laughs) it's it's well what's so crazy is i mean it's like 38% approval rating and everyone's like oh it's the lowest ever for a president at this point but it's still like 38% of the country thinks he's great like that's the bigger the more mm-hmm. terrifying part than than the fact that he's got the lowest approving ra- ratings ever um it doesn't right. seem to be changing anytime soon okay so we talk a lot about you know when we're in our our weekly news meetings Mm -hmm. um we talk we talk a lot about uh 2020 and um and who's going to be up against trump in 2020 and the so i have two questions in this regard and we'll talk about this a little bit more but the first is i was um i met someone who um used to be in the government uh was a republican is a republican Mm -hmm. Obviously not a fan of Donald Trump because otherwise they wouldn't be talking to me. Uh, and <laughs> and he was saying to me that there is a theory by some people that Trump is so disliked um, and that after what happened in the midterms mm-hmm. uh, with so many seats being lost that, uh, that there could – it's never happened before, of course, but there could actually be a contender that comes along who says, hey, you know what? I have the same ideals as him uh, and I'm much more sane and stable. Um, I'm going to take on Trump and actually win to be the nominee. Is Do you think that there's a world in which that happens in the Republican Party? So so this was a question that I explored, um, you know, 
probably sometime last year. And I think, you know, the general thinking on it is still not really. Like, if you look at Donald Trump's approval rating within the Republican Party, um, obviously his support is incredibly partisan, like along partisan lines. Um, but if you look at his support within the Republican Party, it's like 80, 90 percent. So it's incredibly high. So to actually have enough Republicans to make a, you know, a primary, like a GOP primary challenge to Donald Trump, um, you know, worthwhile or sustainable, something would really have to happen to his approval rating within his own party. Because also keep in mind who, you know, who is voting for, who's voting in primaries, right? It's usually people further right in Republican primaries, you know, the real diehards. Um, that's sort of how you've, you know, you get individuals, um, you know, like Ted Cruz out of out of Texas um, to be his party's nominee there versus, you know, more moderate Republican. Um, so one of the things that's interesting is like to really sort of think about a scenario wherein a Republican could challenge Donald Trump in a primary and beat him, like something dramatic would have to happen to his approval rating within the party. And then in terms of, you know, in terms of like an independent, you, like somebody who's a third party candidate who's running against it, there is a, you know, there's a concern certainly among, you know, even Democratic strategists who I've spoken with that a third party candidate could hurt the Democratic nominee and, you know, maybe potentially secure um, another victory for, for Donald Trump in 2020. The thinking there being, you know, Donald Trump has bled independent support and like so many moderate Republicans are, you know, there have been all these individuals who have kind of like left the Republican Party over the last two years, things of that nature. So there's a real concern that if there was a third party candidate who kind of landed somewhere in the middle of a Donald Trump and the Democratic nominee would just really like skim off votes from from both candidates and potentially put that, uh, you know, steal potential independent voters that would have voted for the Democrat, um, but really still not best Trump, you know, kind of leave Democrats at a disadvantage in, in that case. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Here's a little fun fact for you. The average man will shave at least 10,000 times in his lifetime. 10,000 times. That's insane. And yet, we all do so with really terrible razors. Well, not all razors are terrible. There is a company called One Blade Shave that has invested over a million dollars in a world-class award-winning shaving experience, utilizes the most advanced shaving technology on the market. You have to check this thing out. Uh, this razor, it's called the Genesis. It's individually numbered. It's guaranteed for life. It's a gives you the shave that is just zero nicks. Hey, get it, nicks? Uh, zero nicks, cuts, razor burns, ingrowing hair. You get none of that stuff. Um, the weight of the stainless steel handle helps you shave in a silky, soft way as if you're kind of sitting in one of those fancy barber places. Uh, the one blade razor is, they're obsessed, I mean, completely obsessed with uh, with the way that the, the razor shaves, the way it looks, the pivot point, all these things that I know nothing about. But when you read about them, they're actually really, really interesting. Spring force, edge finishing, these are all razor terms that these nerdy one blade raise, shave razor folks have perfected. Do you know how much time they put into this? I'm going to tell you. They have invested over a million dollars, 12,480 man hours, 730 days of research, and iterated on 1,010 different prototypes to exceed the goals of this incredible razor. They are going to offer all of our listeners a special treat this week. 
If you're ready to elevate your shaving experience and try One Blade today, you can go to onebladeshave.com. That's one O N E blade B L A D shave S H A V E dot com and enter the discount code Hive H I V E to check out and you'll get twenty dollars off your entire purchase. Once again, go to onebladeshave dot com, enter the discount code Hive at checkout to get twenty dollars off. Uh, it's an incredible razor. Uh, they have a no hassle sixty day trial, lifetime guarantee. Check it out today. OneBladeShave.com. dot com. So you you have um, you've you've been covering all this stuff for so long that your head must explode uh, from time to time. <laughs> I feel like everybody's uh, head explodes nowadays. <laughs> well, you know what's so fascinating? Uh, Thanksgiving. I uh, we we had like twenty people over to our house for Thanksgiving, and uh, and at the you know everyone's talking and hanging out and eating food and and dessert and drinking and whatnot. And uh, everyone went home and we put the kids down and I was laying in bed and I was kind of playing the day back over in my head. Mm -hmm. And I realized that for the first time in a while, there was never one discussion of Donald Trump. And what's so fascinating is if you think back the last two Thanksgivings when everyone gets together, there was like arguments about like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Like Uncle Bob is like, I love him. And, you know, and, and I don't have an uncle. Bob, but still, like, but it was so fascinating. It's like, I almost feel like we're kind of hitting, I really, I know I've said this before and and it's turned around, but like, I feel like we're kind of hitting Trump fatigue a little bit. Like, it's like, we have been talking about him for, for three years now, Mm -hmm. every single second of the day. And there's kind of like, not that much more to talk about. Uh, Is that, am I just kind of being delusional or is it? Is that the case a little bit, do you think, that the public is kind of a little burned out on him? Yeah, I mean, I definitely I definitely do think that the, the public is burned out on him. Um, that said, he obviously still so totally dominates. But I think there, one of the really interesting things that's kind of happened in, in recent weeks, as, you know, he is essentially an orange volcano and just constantly going off and everything. But I think what's been interesting in my mind since, you know, the midterm election cycle is that what we've seen is like, you know, more attention starting to be paid to some of these other political figures, especially some of these young, like new generation up and comers. And I think they're kind of sucking some of the air out of the Trump talk. I mean, obviously, you know, they are many, many of them are opposed to Trump and they, they talk about that. But I think one of the interesting things is when you look at the, the folks who won some of these districts and some of these midterm elections, a lot of them didn't run as, oh, my platform is anti-Donald Trump, right? A lot of them ran on other issues, whether it was Medicare for all or, you know, climate change or different issues. Of course, you know, healthcare was obviously, you know, Democrats' big, big kind of point um, that they hammered on their platforms. But so I think one of the interesting things is like now that we have some of these bright um you know, newer generation stars who aren't talking about Trump all the time and are talking about things like, you know, climate change or healthcare. It's been kind of interesting to sort of see the way in which it's shifted the conversation. Obviously, you know, individuals like Alexandra um, Ocasio Cortez, who's coming out and you know really pushing this this idea of a new, like a green new deal um, and things of that nature. It's it's been interesting to kind of watch. I think I think you're onto something that some of the conversation has shifted, but I still think you know we are so preoccupied with Trump still. <laughs> Uh, I'm so I'm so sick. Of You're that. so tired of it. I can just hear it in I'm your voice, Nick. <laughs> I, 
I just, I've like, I just, I've been like, you know what I've been doing lately? I've been reading a novel. I, I, you know, I've been watching cooking shows on television. Like I've been just trying to, to push it away a little bit. It's almost like I'm in a, I'm in a, 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 a stocking, you know, like a, a, a woman's stocking and I can't get out, but I'm just pushing <laughs> anyway from every direction That's to quite try the to stop visual. myself. <laughs> that's I what like I that feel that's like. how you view I, yourself right now when I, when that's I so read specific the news. and weird <laughs> but I like it I like it I get it it's thanks, it's a good visual thanks. and you know thanks, what I probably I too probably feel like I'm in a woman's stocking trying to escape we, I think we all are we're all, yeah. just, think we're all just in women's stockings these yeah. days I, did I did I am I did I cross a Me Too line by saying women's stocking is that like no. a bad thing? Am I going to get in trouble now with I, uh, with people on the internet? No, I definitely I definitely don't think so. I think you're good. I think you're <laughs> in the clear there. <laughs> you never know. Um, okay, so you wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago um, that said Republicans are running out of time to kill the Russia probe, uh, and the question is if they were to kill it specifically to completely kill it um would there be a way for the democrats to start a new one i mean i I guess one of the one of the interesting things that when we're looking at that um uh you know there's this question as to whether firing you know whether we're specifically focusing on firing Mueller, like like this investigation is going to be ongoing. You know, even if Robert Mueller were to be fired, like somebody else would likely be in his place. Or even if, you know, even if somebody like Matt Whitaker kind of killed the investigation, it had still, or killed specifically the special counsel investigation, you know, it would just get booted back to the FBI, probably counterintelligence where it was originally before, before Rod Rosenstein decided to appoint Robert Mueller as special counsel. So, so it's very hard to actually imagine at this point a world in which the Russia investigation doesn't exist in some form and doesn't and wouldn't reach some type of conclusion. You know, whether that's, you know, the conclusion that, 50% of America wants or wants to hear about at the very least is another question. But I think, you know, it's very hard to at all imagine a world in which, you know, this is killed completely. What you So you've, you've written quite a lot about Matt Whitaker and um, the the thing that's interesting is, is if he is – when you look at the people that Trump has put into office – with the accession of Scott Pruitt, who I still think is the devil reincarnate, uh, <laughs> he's probably underground right now, you know, eating coal and things like that. But he um, definitely most of the coal. people <laughs> definitely eating coal. Uh, uh, most of the people who he has put into office, they have these moments of they're very far and few between. I mean, you know, it's it's not something that happens often. Like I don't actually know if Nielsen um, has had one uh, ever, but there are people who have these moments of 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 humanity um, mm-hmm. and um, of making the right decision, uh, and even you know even Whitaker's predecessor, who looked like Gollum, uh, um, you know Sessions, he he had moments where he recused himself and you know and things mm-hmm. like that. Do you think that Whitaker will, as the acting attorney general for now, um, would stop himself? from actually committing uh, career suicide before he was to do something like kill the investigation? Well, uh, I obviously, you know, can't speak to his motivations 
Totally. But I think one of the interesting things that you mentioned is this idea of career suicide. Because, you know, I've spoken with um, a number of like former DOJ folks, and they really hammer that point home that you look at somebody like Matt Whitaker. Here's an individual who clearly is ambitious and has, you know, rapidly risen through the ranks to the point that he is now acting attorney general, a job that he is certainly not qualified for, according to, you know, all the sources that I've spoken to about this. But I think, you know, he's a young guy. The question is, is does he want to end his legal career by, you know, shutting down the Robert Mueller probe in a way that's, you know, terrible um, or completely unethical is a really good question. And I think, you know, he will be under scrutiny. I also think, you know, another sort of important point to make is when we're talking about Matthew Whitaker and some of the the power that he has over the Mueller investigation, which is um, substantial if if we're assuming that he has all the, um, you know, all the authority of a that Rod Rosenstein had and, you know, a normal attorney general. Um, Again, there are these kind of questions around his appointment. Um, One of the really interesting things is under the special counsel, uh, under the special counsel guidelines right now, there is a provision, it's called like the sunlight provision, I believe, where any major action he takes. So if he were, if say, for instance, Robert Mueller came to him and is like, I want to indict this individual. um, And, you know, and Whitaker's response to him was like, no, you're not doing that. Or, you know, if he were to cut off funding or do these things, like any of these major actions that he could potentially take in regard to the Mueller investigation, he, under this provision, would have to testify to Congress about it. So it's not like any, you know, if he does anything major to sort of try to curtail or slow down or limit the Mueller investigation would you know, sort of be shut up in a drawer and nobody would ever hear about it. Like, actually, there is a provision in the special counsel um, guidelines that says that he would have to tell Congress about that. And that's now when we look at, you know, Democrats being in power in the House, like where that comes into play, right? Because now it's not just Republicans and they're not just in control and would be able to block, you know, Whitaker from testifying on some of these issues. So so it's kind of interesting um, to sort of think about it in, in those terms and whether somebody who is as young as Whitaker, though I'm, I'm not certain his exact age, would be willing to kind of risk it all for, for Donald Trump? I can't believe anyone's willing to risk, any, risk anything for Donald <laughs> Trump, but there are a lot of people, people, there are a lot of people out there who's... Uh, it's just crazy. It's totally insane. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. The New Yorker is an iconic magazine that represents the best writing in America today. They hold power accountable, as we've seen with some of Ronan Farrow's incredible stories on the Me Too movement. And they do so with incredibly rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. And not only that, but journalists at The New Yorker write on subjects that most of us would never even know about. For example, they did an incredible series on diminishing supply of sand. They did a story on hunting down heirloom beans. And they've had fantastic long-form stories on paper jams, fault lines, even one on stink bugs, which I recommend that you go read. And let's be honest, one of my favorite parts of The New Yorker and the magazine is the sharp and ingenious cartoons, which always make me laugh and smile. 
I pick up the New Yorker, and I do so in print, by the way, uh, a lot of the time, for their politics, their news, their international affairs, climate change, the environment, popular culture, the arts, science, technology, business, fiction, poetry, food, and their latest news on things that are going on today, uh, like the analysis I read this week by the brilliant Jeffrey Tubin on Trump and Mueller, uh, John Cassidy's piece on General Motors, and Rebecca Saltzman's piece uh, in Daily Shouts, which are always beautifully written and fascinating to read. They New Yorker is offering us a special treat here at The Hive this week. Uh, if listeners of this podcast go to newyorker.com slash hive, they will get 50% off when they enter the code hive. That's, once again, newyorker.com slash hive, and listeners can get 50% off when they enter the code hive, H-I-V-E. Uh, you'll receive 12 issues for just $6, plus you get an exclusive New Yorker tote bag. And let's be honest, who doesn't look incredible in a New Yorker tote bag? I have one, and I wear it to the farmer's market every weekend, and I know how ridiculous I sound saying that. Uh, you can get the best writing anywhere. They have home delivery of the print edition, on-the-go New Yorker apps, the digital version, NewYorker.com publishes 15 to 20 new stories a day. Uh, you can go back in the archives. There's shouts, murmurs, poetry, fiction, long-form reporting. It's fantastic. Once again, NewYorker.com slash Hive. Get 50% off when you enter the code Hive and also get one of your free tote bags. Um, okay, so let's get to the Democrats for, yeah. for a hot minute before we let you get back to work. Um, so... 2020, we were already talking about it. Mm -hmm. Beto O'Rourke this week said that he was, um, you know, rethinking. He had originally said that even if he won or lost in Texas, that he was going to rethink um, his uh, attempts to run for president in 2020. And yet now he's saying that uh, he might. What, what is – here's my question. And mm -hmm. maybe I'm just a complete moron and don't understand <laughs> politics. It's entirely possible. Uh, but – if you can't beat the most reviled human being in government, uh, I actually do believe that like, if you asked people if they would rather punch Trump or, <laughs> or Ted Cruz in the face, a lot of people would probably pick Cruz. A lot of people would pick Trump. I'm not going to say they wouldn't, but mm -hmm. a lot of people would pick Cruz. If you cannot beat Ted Cruz, and granted it's Texas, I get it. It's, not a, it's still a red state. But if you cannot beat Ted Cruz with all of the money that Beto O'Rourke has, what makes anyone think that he can run and beat the president of the United States? I mean, so I know you said, you know, I know it's Texas and kind of cast that aside. But that's huge, actually. Like the fact that he came within three points of Ted Cruz in Texas is completely nuts. And the fact that he was able to do that in that state – given that that is the hardest state in the country, arguably, to run in, in terms of, you know, the amount of money it takes and the media markets and the fact that, you know, Ted Cruz ran for president. His name recognition was like 99%. Better O'Rourke, nobody knew who he was. He was like a, a young congressman that nobody knew who had never really done anything. And the fact that he was able to campaign um, around Texas and come that close to Ted Cruz is a really big deal. Because also, you know, keep in mind, too, when you're looking at these things, even if Ted Cruz is reviled. Um, it's still a red state. And a lot of people who are going to the polls are maybe they like Greg Abbott, the governor, you know, maybe they like the lieutenant governor and all these things. So a lot of these folks are getting out there, not necessarily for Ted Cruz, um, but for other people on the tickets. And then they happen to also vote for Ted Cruz over better O'Rourke, you know, this progressive Democrat. So I think, you know, you can't discount the fact that it was in Texas and it was within three points. Um so I, I guess okay, it's like, right, right, you know, okay, running, okay. 
Yeah, I think, and he also, you know, got national attention for sort of, you know, what he did. And I think there's just a lot of excitement around him and sort of what he stands for. And the fact is, is like, when you look at him, um, the fact that he came so close in Texas really calls into question if he could win, um, you know, or, you know, the possibility, actually, I should say, that he could win a lot of these states that Hillary Clinton lost. Do you think that um, he could he could win the presidency? You know, I it's really tough to say right now because obviously everybody's so hyped up and, you know, was so excited after going into the midterms about Beto. Um, I think the thing about him is he's exciting. He's charismatic. People really like him. And he doesn't he's not going to be in a position like Hillary Clinton was where, you know, she's been in the public eye in politics for decades and they can really get a bunch of dirt on him you know i think it's like that's already i don't know i think he certainly has some advantages already over over hillary clinton just in terms of the fact that yeah donald trump was one of the most unpopular candidates in history but so was hillary clinton beto is not unpopular interesting and so who do you think who else do you think is going to be kind of up there on the stage out of the 742 people running for president on the Democratic <laughs> side. Yeah, we're, it's really shaping up to look a lot like the, you know, the Republican primary field in terms of numbers, just the names that are being thrown out there. But, you know, I think you look at other other kind of um, exciting faces in, in the Democratic Party. Kamala Harris, obviously, is a big one. Um, I think she she sort of has a lot of buzz around her in the same way that that Beto does. You know, and then there's kind of like the old, the names that have been thrown around forever. You know, Bernie Sanders is obviously still sort of viewed as a top potential contender for 2020. Joe Biden, um, Elizabeth Warren, sort of, you know, the the people that you'd expect. Cory Booker obviously has never once um, sort of tried to hide his political ambitions and I think has openly at this point said that he's planning to run in 2020. Um, but then you also have a lot of names of other folks like uh, like uh, uh, Senator Brown in Ohio. You know, he held on to a really tough seat um, in that was in Trump country. So a lot of people are kind of talking about him. So so it'll be interesting to see who else. I guess, is there anybody you're excited about? Oh, boy, that was a good question. Um, is there anyone? I mean, look, I think that Beto was um, – he's he's incredibly charismatic. His he, I don't know if he practices the answers he gives, but either way, they're brilliant answers a lot of the times. Like mm-hmm. his response to uh, that video that was shared, I don't know, 20, 30 million times or whatever it was about um, about – shootings of unarmed black men and mm-hmm. um, and why people take a knee. I, it, was, it was just, right. even if you practice that, like even if someone wrote that script for you and you delivered it with that eloquence, it's inspiring. And mm-hmm. um, and so there's part of me that, that uh, really hopes that he does and that he wins. But I, I would much rather have someone who is, who is, more of a atypical, I mean, more, more, sorry, more of a typical politician like a Bernie or somebody like that who may not get as much done if it meant that they would have a better chance of beating Trump than I would um, the person who I think will be amazing. What I do think mm-hmm. is that 
um, is that these, you know, these things are what the way politics is working today is everyone is searching for something to solve a problem, and each time it doesn't solve a problem. What they don't realize, I don't think, is that politics doesn't really solve that many problems. It's it's culture and other things that actually affect um, affect change more so than mm-hmm. uh, than a politician does. And and what as a result of them trying to find a solution to a problem, I think what they do is they go to ex- we're going to extremes in, in the way that we vote for things. And so Trump was a you know, Obama was an extreme response to Bush. Trump was an extreme response to Obama, and there will be an extreme response to Trump um, mm-hmm. if he doesn't win in 2020, which I'm not 100% sure he, <laughs> he. I think he might. I think for two reasons he might. One is because I think he will cheat, uh, um, as we saw happen in 2016, and two is I think that um, a lot of Republicans, especially evangelical Republicans, are complete and utter hypocrites that uh, that will vote just to try to overturn abortion or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Uh, so, uh, so my long-winded answer is I <laughs> I hope for a Beto or somebody like yeah. that. Um, I really, actually, honestly, really did hope for for Bob Iger. Um, I think that he would be actually a pretty brilliant president in the same way that I think Mike Bloomberg would be. Mm-hmm. Um, they're incredibly accomplished business people, thoughtful, um, uh, understanding of, of massive government and so on. Uh, but, you know, I don't think either of those two could win. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Well, I think, I don't, I don't know. I guess my, my whole take on this is whether you like Donald Trump or not, um, he is authentically Donald Trump, right? And yes. I think that played a huge role in 2016, and I think it'll play a huge role in 2020. When you had somebody against him, as like a Hillary Clinton, she was an imperfect foil in that she doesn't give off that same sense of authenticity that he was. Again, whether you like her or not, like, you know, here's somebody who's been in politics for decades. And I think some of that, you know, authenticity just sort of erodes a little bit over time, other than say, if you're a Bernie Sanders or somebody like that, who also had that, you know, and that's sort of what I think you saw in the Democratic primary. I think, you know, so much of Bernie's success, obviously, he had progressive policies and things. But I also think, you know, a huge part of his ability to actually challenge Hillary as competently as he did was driven by his authenticity. So when I'm looking ahead to 2020, I think the biggest, one of the biggest factors, there'll be numerous, but I think a huge factor will be whether or not the person up against Trump is authentic. And I think that will determine their success or failure um, to a large degree. So when you're looking at kind of this field of folks, I think that'll be huge. You know, I think, you know, somebody being authentic would be more important than say if a Bob Iger, another like a businessman, goes up against the businessman Donald Trump. You know, if, if that makes sense, I think it kind of comes back to this idea of charisma, likability, gut instincts in, in a way that um, you know helped Trump. Unfortunately, in in 2016, if that makes sense. Do, do you think that um, there's a world in which uh, a woman gets to run and potentially? make it up there on the ticket? I hope so. I certainly hope so. I think, you know, when we're looking at, um, when you look at the midterms, you know, women 
came through. Women were winning. Women, you know, won so many of these seats that were held by Republicans. So I think there is a lot of momentum um, behind behind women right now. And I think they were such a critical um, part of the midterms, whether you look at voting, because so many women, you know, a lot of the victories were determined by women voters, but also in terms of women candidates. I think, you know, you look at who will go up against Trump, I think, you know, it comes down to whether they're a good candidate. Um, I don't necessarily think it'll come down to whether they're a man or a woman, but I think there's a lot of enthusiasm among and uh, behind women right now. All right. So uh, let's play out the next, what is it until January 20th? It's um, January it's like a 3rd. Month and a half. So third, sooner oh, than that. Third. Yeah. Thanks. So they'll take Thanks. over. Okay. So third. Let, let's say, let's play out the next month. Is it going to be pure, total chaos, or have we kind of gotten through most of it? I mean, <laughs> I feel like I don't want to jinx America right now, um, but I think <laughs> I think there'll still be a lot. I think there's a lot more to come in the Mueller investigation. If you look at you know some of these other sort of issues that are still out there, whether it's Jerome Corsi, um, so the Roger Stone associate who was in talks with the Mueller team, backed out, backed in again, oh, so, wait, all that so stuff. Explain- Explain that a little bit because um, oh, okay. it's kind of a little all over the place just for listeners that – Oh, yes. So so Jerome Corsi is a right-wing conspiracy theorist um, who – you know, he was a huge part of the birtherism movement um, against Obama. Um, but he's an associate of Roger Stone. So, so he's been in talks uh, – sort of his involvement in this whole, you know, broader Mueller probe relates to potential conversations or correspondence or interactions with Julian Assange and WikiLeaks about, you know, the release of these hacked emails, these emails that were hacked by the Russians. So that's kind of where he fits in. You know, there's been a lot of back and forth between Roger Stone. So Roger Stone, another Trump associate and, you know, who actually dates back um, a long time with uh Paul Manafort as well. Those two kind of came up together in Republican politics and uh, consulting a long time ago. Um, But so you have Roger Stone, and there's a big question as to whether Roger Stone um, had advanced knowledge of the WikiLeaks, sorry, WikiLeaks email dump. Um, And that's kind of where Jerome Corsi fits in is to, you know, this question as to whether anybody sort of in on the Trump campaign or within the Trump orbit was aware that WikiLeaks um, was planning to release the emails that were stolen from the DNC and and, uh, John Podesta. Uh, So that's kind of where he fits into all of this. But what we've seen with him over the last couple of weeks is he's sat for, I believe, something um, along the lines of 40 hours with Mueller investigators over six sessions of questioning. He's appeared before the grand jury. Um, You know, he was originally in talks about a cooperation deal with Mueller. He backed out, then he was like backed in. I don't know. He's kind of been sharing his experience, but now he says he's out and, you know, might try to take action against Mueller. Um, So he's a big question mark right now. And then obviously you also have the Roger Stone question mark because Mueller has questioned a number of individuals sort of in Stone's orbit about his contacts with WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign, Corsi among them. Um, so those are kind of two big question marks right now when we're looking at the probe. And I think we're going to likely see some action on those coming up, especially since it was clear in Corsi's case, given you know the public statements he as an individual has made, that 
you know, he was nearing a deal with Mueller, which kind of would suggest that Mueller was ready to kind of wrap up the Corsi portion of, of his investigation. So you have it's that so going crazy on. That yeah. <laughs> you, it's so crazy that there are all these people in Trump's orbit that have been indicted or in jail or have been or spent 70,000 hours with the, the Mueller team and, and, and all of these people who support Trump think, oh, well, he's just he's a good guy. And they're just the, the Democrats are going after him. It's so bananas to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think <sighs> anyway. they just, you know, people believe what he says and they believe sort of this branding of the Mueller investigation as a witch hunt. Well, they're all batshit crazy. As far as I'm <laughs> um, OK, so sorry, you were saying that, the, 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 that as we wrap up. Um, what the next uh, next month might look like. Oh, yeah. So so you have those guys. You obviously have the Cohen stuff. It'll be really interesting to kind of see what more comes out of it in the um, sort of in terms of his cooperation deal. Today, what was really interesting actually is um, the feds showed up at the law firm in Chicago that, you know, represented Donald Trump for 12 years. So that was kind of going on. You could sort of wonder if that's connected at all to to Michael Cohen. Um, So that's sort of an interesting thing sort of going on in the background today. Um, So definitely following the Cohen stuff, the Corsi stuff, the Stone stuff. But also one of the other interesting things is in the court filing on Monday, wherein Mueller, as as we kind of covered earlier in the podcast, wherein Mueller accused Paul Manafort of lying, despite his cooperation deal with investigators, uh, you know, they said that we will detail at some point what exactly it was that Paul Manafort lied about um, or what they believe Paul Manafort lied about. So that'll be interesting to kind of see what it was that, you know, Paul Manafort um, kept from the investigators and sort of uh, kind of what that might amount to in the picture that, you know, that paints just in terms of what he was unwilling to sort of dish on, I think is interesting. Um, And then, you know, when we're looking at other stuff, you're right, we have until January 3rd until Democrats take over the House. And we've already seen a number of Republicans in the House try to take some of these like final actions against whether it's the Justice Department or the FBI, different subpoenas, um, things of that nature. You know, they called... uh, Comey, for instance, is among those that they want to testify again. And Comey's, you know, refusing the subpoena at this point, saying, I'll come, but only if it's a public hearing, things of that nature. So I think, you know, there are Republicans definitely in the House who are trying to cause trouble while they can and while they have, you know, these powers um, that are granted to the majority. So it'll be interesting. I certainly do not think that it's going to be calm for the rest of the week or, you know, really until um, January at all. So buckle up. All right. So <laughs> buckle up. So so last, last, last question. Um, if uh, if you had to say whether um, this investigation will end up on Donald Trump's doorstep uh, with him himself being indicted, and I know you don't know the answer to this, but I'm just curious, uh, just from all the people you speak to and whatnot, um, do you think that's what's going to happen or do you think it'll stop at his son or something like that? So I... I, I actually think, you know, in terms of this and whether Trump will be indicted question, um, I am of the mindset that Mueller would not um, indict a sitting president. 
Um, so I don't actually think it would reach that level just given DOJ guidelines, though there is, I, I do believe there is a path. Um, one of my sources, Neil Katyal, he's former solicitor, acting solicitor gen- general under um, President Obama. Um, and I've spoken with him and he helped write uh, the, the special counsel statute and has said that, you know, that there kind of could be a path to indicting a sitting president. But I actually think that um, Robert Mueller is unlikely to do that. And I think what we would more likely be able to see if it really reached that point, if it really reached this question or this threshold of, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors, which I can't, you know, say whether it will or will not. um, I think what we would likely see is something much more similar to what, what happened with Nixon, where in, you know, where he was listed as an unindicted co-conspirator, I think is sort of, you know, what we could expect from, from Mueller. Um, in terms of that. But, you know, I think one of the really interesting things that we're seeing right now is with this, um, with the Michael Cohen news today, it's very clear that, you know, some of this could really rise to the level of Trump, not just, you know, sort of these kind of fringy uh, figures in his, um, in his orbit, or, you know, his family members. Yeah. Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch Mm -hmm. from our, our women's tights, Yes, from inside women's a pair of women's nylons that we're <laughs> infinitely currently recording this of. podcast. From. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Um, I, I, you know what? I really am into the visual now. So it's definitely grown you, on you're me. Real, you're feeling yeah, it. I'm on board. I'm it? on board. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Abby, this has been fascinating as always. Thank you so much for taking the time. Of course. And, uh, we will we will probably have you back on when uh, when the Mueller investigation finally comes to a close in twenty thirty five. Yep, great, um, great. And, yep. Uh, <laughs> thank you again. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks to my guest this week, Abby Tracy. She was fantastic and wonderful and informative as ever. If you enjoyed this conversation, and let's be serious, you knew you enjoyed it, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. They are all pretty great, okay? You can find these on applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, American Express, One Blade, and New York Magazine. Getting pretty good at this, actually. Uh, Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you next week. I don't actually know why I say I'll see you next week because none of us ever actually see each other. So let's just do that again with I'll hear you next week or you'll hear me or I don't know. Whatever. Have a good week.